Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. On the morning of November 8, 1994, a 57-year-old doctor sat down for breakfast in his Vancouver home. The outspoken obstetrician had been performing abortions for over 20 years, and during that time, he'd been the target of anti-abortion protesters who, on occasion, set up peaceful pickets outside his home and his office. But today would be different. As the doctor ate his breakfast, a sniper's bullet smashed through the glass doors of the kitchen. It tore into his left thigh, shattering the bone and severing his femoral artery. The doctor fell to the floor as blood poured from his wound. He was gravely injured, but somehow he had the wherewithal to use the belt from his bathrobe as a tourniquet, saving his own life. Over the next four years, an unknown sniper carried out a reign of terror in Canada and the U.S., targeting abortion providers on both sides of the border, leading investigators on a global manhunt. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s. On this episode, we look back at the violent era that gave rise to a man known as the abortion sniper. I'm probably stating the obvious when I say the issue of abortion is complicated and highly contentious. In this episode, we're not going to try to tackle the whole issue. Instead, we're going to focus on one facet in particular. A rise in violence against abortion providers and clinics in the 90s that included attacks by a mysterious gunman. But before we do that, a little bit of background. The practice of abortion was legalized in the United States following the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. In Canada, it was first allowed in 1969, but only under certain circumstances. Then in 1988, abortions became fully legal in Canada when the Supreme Court struck down the country's abortion law as unconstitutional. In both countries, as soon as abortion became legal, protests were a frequent occurrence. And in the U.S., there were some cases of violence reported back in the 70s and 80s, mostly arsons and a few bombings at abortion clinics. But the situation ratcheted up dramatically in the 1990s. 
As the number of abortions being performed in the United States climbed from 500,000 in 1973, the year it was legalized, to 1.4 million in 1990, more and more anti-abortion extremists began to turn to violence. Particularly, those aligned with an extremist group called the Army of God. They made their position clear that killing abortion providers was the only way to stop the procedure from being performed. A manual published by the Army of God stated, Our Lord requires that whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Not out of hatred for you, but out of the love for the persons you exterminate. We are forced to take up arms against you. Another movement called Operation Rescue was also very active in the 90s. The Christian-based group formed by Terry Randall in 1986 believed that violence was a justified way to prevent what it called the murder of unborn children. They frequently protested outside clinics and often incited violence against people who worked there. And according to a New York Times article in 1998, an anti-abortion internet website called the Nuremberg Files kept track of doctors who performed the procedure. The website stated that a coalition of concerned citizens was collecting dossiers on abortionists for future trials on crimes against humanity. The website listed the names of hundreds of doctors across the U.S. and Canada who it said performed abortions. In addition to the list, the website included the abortion provider's personal information, things like their home addresses, phone numbers, and photographs. The names of the doctors were color-coded, to indicate whether the doctor was working or wounded. And if there was a line crossed through the doctor's name, it meant they'd been killed. In 1993, Dr. David Gunn became the first doctor in the United States to be killed by an anti-abortion extremist when he was shot outside a clinic in Pensacola, Florida. Just before his death, an old-fashioned wanted poster of Gunn was handed out at a rally for Operation Rescue. The poster included a picture of Gunn, his home phone number, and some other identifying information. Later that same year, another doctor was shot and injured outside a clinic in Wichita, Kansas. And then in July 1994, a doctor and his volunteer security guard were gunned down outside the Pensacola Clinic, where the first shooting took place a year and a half earlier. A well-known protester with ties to the Army of God was arrested at the scene for that one. Bombings and arsons at clinics in the United States also became almost commonplace, with over 40 reported attacks between 1990 and 1994. And anti-abortion extremists also began using butyric acid as a weapon against abortion facilities in about early 1992. The colorless liquid was injected into dozens of buildings, producing a putrid smell that's been described as being similar to vomit. The tactic not only caused clinics to shut down for a while, it also caused thousands of dollars of damage because carpet and furniture often needed to be replaced. In May 1992, Canada, which had escaped the anti-abortion violence so far, was suddenly no longer immune when Dr. Henry Morgenthaler's clinic in downtown Toronto was firebombed in the middle of the night causing over $500,000 in damages. 
Dr. Morgenthaler was a very well-known abortion advocate who was instrumental in having Canada's abortion law struck down by the Supreme Court. Then in November 1994, Dr. Gary Romales, the doctor I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, became the victim of a targeted attack at his home in Vancouver. It appears that he was sitting at his kitchen table having breakfast this morning when somebody apparently from the rear lane shot through the glass doors at the rear of the premise, hitting him in the leg. You can see in the back of the residence very clearly where the shots would have come from. There's a spreading of the leaves there, uh, indicating that someone was lying down. There's a compost container with a, a opening through the fence that would have allowed for easy access, easy aim. Uh, this would indicate very clearly to us that this was not a random shooting in any way, that it was a planned event. Dr. Romales was an outspoken and well-known advocate of abortion, a procedure which he felt was a quick, harmless way to improve a woman's life. As a young doctor, he took an internship at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. The Vancouver native was a long way from home, and he wasn't really prepared for what he saw. It was the early 60s, and abortions were still illegal. So many of the patients that Romales treated as an OBGYN were women who had been injured by illegal back alley procedures or do-it-yourself attempts. The Chicago hospital, in fact, had an entire ward set aside just for the women who were admitted with complications from botched abortions. On average, one woman died per month on the ward, and this had a major impact on Romales. Motivated by his stint in Chicago, he became one of the first doctors in Canada to provide legal abortions after the law was liberalized in 1969. When Dr. Romales was attacked that early morning in November 1994, it raised the level of threat from anti-abortion zealots to an intensity never seen before in Canada. Security was tightened at Canadian abortion clinics and hospitals as police officers searched for clues in the case. The homes of abortion clinic workers and doctors were placed under police guard amid fears that American-style militancy had spread north to Canada. This protester, who spoke to the media back in 1994, was quite clear about how she felt about Dr. Romales. We do believe that this man is a mass murderer. He has killed thousands of children. The doctor who was the shot doctor today. Who was shot today. He definitely has been doing abortions for years, therefore he has certainly killed thousands of children. And I do believe that the law should be putting people like this to death. He is a murderer, it's that plain and simple. But as far as taking the law into our own hands, I don't believe the time has come for that. And I don't believe that I probably will ever have those sentiments. Dr. Romales returned to work after spending 10 weeks in hospital. And despite the attempt on his life, he remained steadfast in his belief in the importance of providing women with choice. There's no question in my mind that this man was trying to kill me. And I think that anybody who supports that kind of terror is, shouldn't be sitting at the same table in a, in a just society. It's an act of terrorism, it's an act of violence, and it doesn't belong in our civilized society. In response to the shooting, the B.C. provincial government enacted a law called the Access to Abortion Services Act in October 1995. 
It prohibited anti-abortion protests within 50 meters of clinics and doctor's offices or their homes. And a $100,000 reward was offered by the British Columbia Medical Association for information connected to the shooting. But the case seemed to go cold until almost exactly one year later when the abortion sniper appeared to strike again on the opposite side of Canada. On the evening of November 10th, 1995, Dr. Hugh Short had dinner and then retired to his den on the second floor of his house in the town of Ancaster, Ontario. Back in 1995, Ancaster, which is now part of the city of Hamilton, was a small, quiet, upscale suburb with very little crime. Dr. Short lived on a secluded, winding road in a large Tudor-style house that backed onto a wooded area heavily populated by deer. It was already dark when 62-year-old Dr. Short sat down in his favorite chair to watch TV. His wife, Catherine, was with him. They had no idea that someone lurked in the woods behind their house with a high-powered rifle. Dr. Short was an obstetrician-gynecologist who worked at Henderson Hospital in Hamilton, mostly delivering babies, and as a small part of his practice, he also performed abortions. What happened on that night in November 95 ended his career and shattered his life. Two rifle shots came through the window uh, into the den. Uh, both of the shots entered through the sort of the wooden frame of the window as, as opposed to the glass. That's reporter and author John Wells. He covered the shooting for the Hamilton Spectator, and he wrote a book about the case called Sniper. One shot missed him, and the other shot hit him in the in the elbow um, where he was sitting, and so he started. He, he bled uh, profusely from the from the wound, and his his, his wife uh, helped him uh, tie a tourniquet around the elbow with a, with a tie from his closet. Uh, and, and she and she phoned uh, 911. Some of the first investigators on the scene believe that the shooting may have been an accident, a stray bullet from a deer hunter in the area. There was another officer, a detective, who told me that, you know, as soon as he went into the, the den and saw these two shots that come through the window, two shots clustered together, that suggested it was someone who had been practicing at least or had a, had a decent shot. And that it was that it was intentional, that there wasn't you know, one shot here and one shot, you know, uh, on the other side of the house or something like that. It was someone who would clearly try to, to, to hit him. That officer, Detective Mike Campbell, was also quick to determine that Dr. Short was probably targeted because he performed abortions. It was hard not to notice the similarities between the shooting of Dr. Short and Dr. Romales, which had occurred a year earlier in British Columbia. Both doctors performed abortions. Both were shot by someone with a high-powered rifle who lurked in the shadows outside their home. And the shootings both occurred around the same date, November 11th. That's Remembrance Day in Canada and Veterans Day in the U.S., it's also been called Remember the Unborn Children Day by some anti-abortion activists. Investigators brought in the dog unit and metal detectors to search the forest surrounding the short residence looking for clues and evidence. When they went inside a shed on Dr. Short's property, they discovered food wrappers and other signs that someone had been spending time inside the shed before the shooting. 
stalking Dr. Short, watching and learning his routine. Police also found shell casings on the ground near the shed. The, the interesting part from that was that the they ultimately found out that the shells didn't match the bullets. And uh, one of the Hamilton detectives, uh, Frank Harold, said that uh, colorful guy. He said, he said, oh, he said, you know, the uh, the sneaky bastard is, was leaving fake uh, fake ammunition. You know, trying to confuse the investigators, right? Which. I imagine would have sort of for them kind of raised the stakes a little bit like, okay, this is this is someone who's clever or at least trying to be clever and trying to uh, misdirect us. When Hamilton police made this discovery, they contacted Vancouver police who revealed that shells found at the scene of the Romala shooting also weren't a match. It was another clue that police in BC and Ontario were looking for the same person. They were likely dealing with a serial shooter. At the short home, an additional piece of evidence was found. A black balaclava toque was discovered near the driveway of the house. Investigators were able to get DNA from the balaclava and developed a profile. The profile was run through the system, but nothing came up. There were no matches. So the DNA profile was filed away for later. After the shooting of Dr. Short, police in Hamilton issued an unprecedented warning to other police forces across Canada, urging them to arrange special protection for doctors who provide abortions. This terror, this this fear, it leads to um, physicians, and you know, uh, being especially those who provide abortion services, being urged by the, by the medical association, and so on, to uh, take precautions, uh, to, to to take a different route, driving home from the hospital. Uh, if you've got a couple of cars, change a car up and you know, draw your blinds at night so you're not an easy target in, in your home. Um, so there was, there, was, there was a lot of fear uh, going on about who, who might be next. Who might be next turned out to be a doctor south of the Canada-U.S. border in Richmond, New York, a suburb of Rochester. It happened almost two years later, on October 28, 1997. Police refused to release many details in that one, only saying that a doctor was injured while inside his home. A bullet smashed through a window, and according to police, the doctor was injured by flying glass. But then two weeks later, on November 11th, 1997, the sniper appeared to strike again. This time back in Canada. 66-year-old Dr. Jack Feynman, the head of obstetrics and gynecology at Winnipeg's Victoria Hospital, was sitting in his living room watching TV when a bullet ripped through a window and into his shoulder. Feynman tried but was never able to return to practicing medicine. Little bits of bullets stayed buried in his shoulder. These nocturnal attacks uh, was, uh, was, was a form of domestic terrorism, uh, and uh, he was one of the victims of that. And that, that was the, the whole purpose of it was to scare people. That's that's why uh, the shooter was doing this. He was trying to uh, trying to prevent physicians from from doing their job. Four shootings, four doctors injured. Two would never practice medicine again. But so far, luckily, no one had been killed. That changed in the fall of 1998. 51-year-old Dr. Bernard Slepian divided his practice between a clinic in Buffalo, New York, and his private office in Amherst. Beginning around 1992, the clinic was the scene of a coordinated series of protests led by members of the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue. Protesters also singled out Dr. Slepian at his home, 
marching outside with signs, taunting the doctor by calling him a murderer. In 1995, hoping to escape the protesters, the doctor, his wife, and their four sons moved to a new house in Roxbury Park, a quiet, affluent Amherst neighborhood. On October 28, 1998, after returning home from synagogue with his wife, Dr. Slepian greeted his sons and then headed to the kitchen to warm up a bowl of soup. He had no idea a gunman lurked outside in the dark watching him. While Slepian stood waiting for his soup, suddenly a bullet smashed through the kitchen window. The bullet pierced Slepian's spine and aorta. He died a few hours later. The following day, a line had been drawn through the doctor's name on the Nuremberg Files website. After the shooting, the Buffalo Clinic where Slepian worked was shut down for a few days. And when it reopened, U.S. Marshals stood guard outside the clinic. And doctors from out of state volunteered to staff the clinic and care for Slepian's patients. Unlike the other shootings, police in the Slepian case had a valuable lead thanks to an observant neighbor. Nine days before the attack, a woman who was out jogging noticed a beat up car in the neighborhood. She jotted down the license plate number as a precaution. And after the shooting, the woman turned over that information to police. They discovered that the car was registered to an anti-abortion crusader with ties to the Army of God and Operation Rescue. He went by the nickname Atomic Dog and had been arrested many times in the 80s and 90s for disrupting women's clinics around the United States. The suspect's stepmother told a reporter that he converted to Catholicism in the 1980s after splitting up with his girlfriend who had aborted his child. The stepmother said it was a pivotal moment in his life. Originally from Vermont, the suspect had been living a somewhat transient life in the 90s, traveling around the United States protesting at clinics. He usually ended up staying at the homes of other people who were part of the anti-abortion movement. Police were able to search some of those homes where he stayed, and they found some of his items and were able to develop a DNA profile. That profile matched the hat that was found outside Dr. Short's house in Ancaster. Then, six months after Dr. Slepian's murder, police got another breakthrough. Police who were searching in the woods behind Slepian's home find the rifle buried in a buried like in a plastic tube uh, under under the ground, the type of tube uh, where the, uh, the shooter could retrieve it, uh, use it, and then slide it back in again under the ground. DNA found on the rifle also matched the suspect. Police finally had enough to issue a warrant. In May 1999, New York State Police charged James Charles Cop with second-degree murder and issued a warrant for his arrest. A federal warrant was also issued on charges of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act by using deadly force against an abortion doctor. The RCMP in Canada issued a warrant as well. Cop was wanted on a charge of attempted murder in the shooting of Dr. Hugh Short in Ancaster, and he was the key suspect in the Vancouver and Winnipeg shootings. Cop was soon added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list. His picture was on the FBI's website, and it was on display in post offices and police stations all over the world. But the suspected shooter had become a ghost, nowhere to be found. 
Over the next two years, as the search continued, Cop made it to Mexico, then Ireland, and finally ended up in a tourist town in northwestern France, where authorities ultimately caught up with him after they intercepted an email he sent to a supporter in the United States. On March 30th, 2001, Cop went to the post office in the small French town of Dinan to pick up $300 mailed to him by a supporter in the U.S. When he stepped outside, members of the French National Police Force were waiting to arrest him, which they did without a struggle. It took some time to get Cop extradited back to the United States. The American government first had to agree that it would not seek the death penalty if France sent him to face charges. And once he was back in the U.S., Cop pleaded not guilty. He maintained that the police had the wrong man. But then ultimately in jail, sort of on the eve more or less of the trial, uh, Cop confesses to a couple of reporters from the Buffalo News. Uh, he confesses he did it, but that he didn't mean to kill him. So this, this changes the, the, whole, the whole case. At trial, Cop maintained that he killed Dr. Slepian by accident. He only meant to injure him as a way to stop him from performing abortions. But the defense didn't work. In March 2003, five years after the death of Dr. Slepian, Cop was convicted of second-degree murder. Cop's trial was expected to take a month, but it took only a day after Cop waived his right to a jury and after he agreed to the facts in a 35-page prosecution summary presented to the judge. Cop admitted firing the fatal shot, but didn't believe it was a crime to act in defense of the unborn. The judge rejected that view, and Cop's claim that he intended merely to wound Slepian. At his sentencing hearing two months later, Cop was allowed to make a 90-minute statement, during which he reiterated he didn't mean to kill Dr. Slepian. But he said, given the chance, he would do it again. In a soft, even voice, Cop asked, why should the safety of Dr. Slepian be put above the safety of weak, vulnerable children? He warned if abortions were still being performed when he was released from prison, he would act again. When handing down his sentence, the judge said no civilized society can tolerate excesses that are tantamount to anarchy, and he sentenced Cop to 25 years to life. In 2008, he was also convicted on the federal charges and received another life sentence plus 10 years. As for the shootings of the three Canadian doctors, well, in 2009, police in Canada announced that they would not pursue charges against Cop because of his life sentence in the U.S., Hamilton reporter John Wells has met with cops several times since he's been in prison, first in Batavia and then in West Virginia. Wells asked him specifically about the shooting of Dr. Short. You know, I asked him about uh, Hamilton and uh, uh, he said, uh, where is Hamilton? And he sort of had a, you know, this, this flat expression to him. You know, I mean, this a guy who will talk about anything all of a sudden turned very very quiet on that, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I mentioned, I mentioned they had the DNA and he just said, you know, I, I he, he said he hadn't been to Canada, period, since he was a teenager when he went on a family vacation. Wells said that interviewing Cop was a very unusual experience. I mean, a real different guy. He, he insists that I not bring a, a tape recorder or a pad and pencil into the interview. Uh, my sense was he, he just didn't want to, be, he wanted to be able to disavow anything that I wrote, uh, you know, well, uh, 
but I, I, I went in there and they were very intense sort of interviews and I remembered everything I could. And, I, and as soon as I left the jail, I got my tape recorder on and I just dictated everything he said. And uh, that's what I used for, for the story. Um, what was he like other than being a different kind of guy? Like, what was your feeling when you met him? Uh, very unassuming and, uh, well, there, there was a duality, I think, to his personality that, that the first, upon like sort of first meeting him, glasses, smallish guy uh, at first glance, where, uh, you know, people described him as being sort of, you know, a, a geek and coming off like that in court. And he had that. But then uh, when he would speak with intensity about anything, anything like the movement, I sort of got the sense of uh, that he had this other capability to him. Today, 66-year-old cop is serving out his two life sentences in a West Virginia prison where he spends most of his time walking alone, often in the yard, holding rosary beads and praying. The 90s were an incredibly violent time on the front lines of the abortion issue. A total of 11 people were shot, seven of whom died. And one person was killed in a bombing at a clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. You may remember that case from the episode we did on the bombing at the Atlanta Summer Olympics. Eric Rudolph, the man responsible for the Olympic attack, also detonated a bomb at an abortion clinic, killing an off-duty police officer and severely injuring a clinic nurse. Since the 90s, anti-abortion violence has decreased, but it still remains a threat, particularly in the U.S., where there have been over 30 arsons and bombings in the past 20 years. Following the death of Dr. Slepian in 1998, there wasn't another abortion-related killing until 2009, when Dr. George Tiller was gunned down in his church in Wichita, Kansas. Anti-abortion extremist Scott Roeder confessed to the killing, and was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Then in 2015, three people were killed at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs, Colorado. A man armed with an automatic weapon went on a shooting spree, killing a police officer and two women and injuring nine others. Robert Louis Deere Jr., the admitted gunman in the attack, has so far been deemed incompetent to stand trial in the case. And remember that website I mentioned called the Nuremberg Files, which listed the names of abortion providers? Well, it was eventually shut down in 2002 after the U.S. Court of Appeals concluded that being listed on a Nuremberg Files scorecard for abortion providers threatened physicians with being next on a hit list. And as for Operation Rescue, leader Randall Terry stepped away in 1994 Before he did, the group's objectives were stretched beyond ending abortion. Eventually, Terry led his followers to oppose homosexuals and others he perceived as anti-Christian. In 1993, he was quoted in the media as saying, I want you to just let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. After Terry left Operation Rescue, Flip Benham took over as leader. And today, it still exists in the form of several autonomous offshoots, which continue to fight against abortion using a variety of tactics. Thanks for joining me for this look back at the troubling story of the abortion sniper and the violence that permeated the abortion issue in the 90s. And thanks to reporter John Wells for sharing what he knows about this case. His book is called Sniper. I'll have a link to him and his book in the show notes. 
And hey, if you've got an idea for a show, I would love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. You can also reach me through Twitter at 1990s History and on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, check out some of our previous episodes, like the one I mentioned earlier on the bombing at the Atlanta Summer Games. You might also be interested in the episode we did on the Oklahoma City bombing. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.